For August 18th, 2014, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 220. The Expendables 3, A Midsummer Night's Railgun. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. And when I say me, I mean myself, Matt Rather, and my co-host, Peter Fenzel. Hey, Pete. I am torn asunder by emotions, Matt. Torn asunder. (laughs) It's been a heck of a week. Yes, a long week of high points and low points. It truly truly has. Well, uh, Pete, this is – I feel like you and I are just owning the Overthinking It podcast space, right? We did the last episode of the, the, this podcast together. We did a guest episode of the TFT podcast together. Uh, we've just had this opportunity to talk, which I uh, quite appreciate um, any chance to talk with you. And, and uh, we're going to do it. We're going to do it again tonight. How do you feel about that? You know, I feel pretty good. I like talking with you. I always like I like our extended stable as well. I like our uh, our rogues gallery here at Overthinking It. Um, but sometimes Batman and the Joker just need to get down to business. Mm. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, question of the week. You know how I got these scars? No. How did you get those scars? <laughs> why so serious? Uh, no. The, the, I'll tell you why so serious. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Why so serious is the passing of Robin Williams this week. Uh, really sad thing. Um, it was all, it was reported in the uh, in the the media a lot as like uh, they need a word for thing that happened. Right. That is not like occurrence, because I suppose that sounds arch or like occasion, because that sounds like uh, it's an occasion. It sounds like you're you're sort of glorifying it when you want to do the opposite. So, like, I saw a lot online. um, Sad development. Right. Did you did you see that uh, particular locution? There's been a sad development. And I I take issue with that way of describing it. I actually think it's quite insensitive, right? Because it seems, it makes it seem like everything was developing to this point, right? Like a development is a sort of inevitable outcome, right? Or, a, or can be read as being a sort of a, a development of what is latent in the, in the situation. And, and, you know, I don't know, to me, it's, uh, I, I guess tragedy, <laughs> tragedy technically means the same thing, right? Like that the the sad outcome was was latent in the situation. But I I like to look at these things as I, I like to kind of look optimistically at bad things that happen and think that you know they're they're somehow avoidable or escapable or we can we can other people in the future can can uh, escape similar outcomes. You know if we. D- Take care of each other and love each other. I don't know. I'm I'm yeah. rambling because I, I'm well, just sort of emotionally exhausted by uh, by what happened this week. Yeah, I mean, when you say development, that's interesting because what I hear is news development. Right. Exactly. And when we're talking about the spinning out of fate into the future, the idea that a tragedy and more than most Robin Williams' death feels like a tragedy, especially mm. with the revelations later in the week of his illness, right, which very much to me changes the character of what happened. I'd rather not go into detail about any of that stuff. There's there's no real I don't really feel like I know enough. I think the mysterious air with which I spoke about it in the 
I guess elegy I wrote for him or obit- sort of obituary I wrote for him on the site where I left a lot to be not discussed is sort of where I feel comfortable in terms of my level of knowledge. But at any rate, I will say this feels a bit more like a tragedy than when people just sort of die in an accident. Um, but I think when you say development, it's not the fate of the individual as he faces inexorable mortality or, of course, the passing of beautiful and wonderful things from the world, which we all certainly wish didn't happen. It's a news development, right? This is a development in the story, meaning that the fate that is spinning out is the series of all stories that the news is going to have to run, uh, against which presumably it is largely agnostic in its attitude, right? Like, or like, this is an unfortunate development because I feel somewhat more negatively disposed towards this news story that I have to write rather than the other news stories that I have to write. This is a change in the sort of ongoing, if reality is created by the news, then this is a, an unfortunate uh, headline to it's, see pass through. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah. I mean, unfortunate and development, right? Like yeah. fortune and fate are two. Um, I won't say incompatible, but two sort of uh, uh, intention. There are two kind of ways of looking at developments that are intention yeah. with with one another. And when when something is unfortunate, right? It's it's sort of accidental. Uh, you know, and and was is the claim that that's made is it it's sort of a random outcome uh, and an unlucky one, right? And when something right. is is you know uh, bad bad fate, right? Like it's uh, it's a um, it may be a sad outcome, but it's one that that was somehow we were inexorably moving toward uh, yeah. all the time. And I I don't know, I really. And that's a poetical – the difference between the, – the place of luck in determinism is a poetical question more than a philosophical question. Yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, so let's, let's question of the week about this. I mean let's, let's sort of celebrate, uh, celebrate the work of Robin Williams. Um, so what, what – uh, in, in light of his passing, what, um, what Robin Williams' performance takes on – you know, a, a new or a deeper meaning, a more profound or a more resonant um, significance for you. you. You have one in mind? Yeah, and this is the one I used for the picture huh. that I posted. And I really think it's, it's really kind of eerie how the movie Toys seems to have a, a creepy sort of currency as I think about it. I was looking right at now. that one also. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I would kind of urge people to take another look at it because, first of all, it fits the ongoing trend of movies this year, which are about drones and the tension around like drones and automated military technology, right? And and what Toys is kind of about is, I mean, it's about a lot of things. It's a complicated movie. It's kind of, I wouldn't say it's nonlinear, but the narrative isn't really the crispest and the most focused, so it explores a lot of different kind of ideas between the beginning and the end. But this idea of life as play, which is, I mean, it's really almost Hindu, right? This idea that, that life properly lived is, is an act of play uh, is something that's found in some of the more celebratory ideas in, in Hindu, Hindu um, theology, which is notable, of course, because of the haunting presence of the giant elephant, which is uh, the father's grave in this movie and the giant uh, green grass, right? And this celebration of play, life and play in opposition to death, but then both play and also struggle, right? Play and wrath, play and war. War is really the word, toys and war, right? In opposition both to each other, but also both as in opposition to death, right? That like, death arrives and the world has to be decided between visions of play and visions of war. And Robin Williams, you know, 
is presides over a lot of this movie. He presides over our view of the movie, but he does not preside over the mise en scene, right? Like the other, he has a certain private window to it. He's able to open to us and to Joan Cusack's character, but it's a world that is governed by other forces. As much as uh, we might like to see through the movie, that Robin Williams' own childlike energy and also kind of deep sadness that pervades his performance in this movie. Like, both of those things. You know, those are the things that have authority for us as the watchers of the movie, but we're cognizant that this is a world in which there are other forces that are uh, perhaps more benevolent, perhaps more hostile, but generally not as identifiable, not as human, as the note that Robin Williams brings to it mm-hmm. in this movie. Uh, and, I, I mean, it's interesting also in particular to look at the juxtaposition between, like, Robin Williams and LL Cool J as the sort of two faces of unseriousness. Right. Um, in, the, in the backdrop of something happening like this, which is oh so serious. Right? And you said, why so serious? Why yeah. so serious? Because a great man has died. That's why it's so serious. Uh, and, and LL Cool J is this one kind of silly, and Robin Williams is this other kind of silly. And uh, you know, the movie is about kind of both of them dealing it's, – it's almost, it's almost existential. I mean it's very existential. I'm not almost. It's very existential in the way they both kind of fight battle for their authentic experience of humanity on their own terms against like the automation that's happening around yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's and that's that haunting green grass with the elephant right. and the sad, sad smile on his face. That's um, you know, mine. Mine is sort of like it, uh, but I realize as you were as you were sort of explaining your your choice, uh, which was one I was thinking of. Um, I wanted to single mine out uh, for for a similar reason. Um, mine is uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. In which Robin Williams oh, wow. a- appears as Osric, right? Yeah, and and so here's a here's a little bit uh, here's a little bit of Hamlet for you if you don't uh, if you don't happen to know all the um, if you happen to uh, don't happen to know the whole plot and you know spoiler alert for Shakespeare's Hamlet, right? Um, after Hamlet, in his sort of uh, mania to find out. Um, whether his uncle, uh, now stepfather, uh, killed his father. Turn, spoiler alert, yes, he did. Um, he uh, ends up stabbing a functionary named Polonius uh, and being banished to England, uh, where he is, unbeknownst to him, sentenced to die. Um, he escapes and comes back to Denmark, and uh, Claudius, the uncle stepfather, is like, okay, man, plan B, how are we going to kill Hamlet? And concocts uh, with an accomplice this, um, this duel, this sword fight, uh, where the swords are going to be poisoned and there's going to be a poison chalice and, uh, you know, we're going to kill him with poison. And uh, he, he uh, sends another one of his toadies uh, to Hamlet to kind of goad him on, to uh, prick up his pride and get him to come to the sword fight. And, and um, that, uh, that character's name is Osric. And he's described as being sort of a waterfly. He, he kind of, you know, buzzes and, and flits about. And he, he represents, I think... Um, the uh, the the sort of d- ultimate debasement of Claudius's court, right? Like, whereas the old King Hamlet, Hamlet's young Hamlet's father, had been a man's man, you know, did uh, did um, smite the sledded Polak on the ice, you know, and uh, 
and or or was that Norway who did that? But uh, a lot of smiting, a lot of smiting going on, right? Like, and and even though it, he kind of seems like maybe he was, uh, you know, maybe he was kind of a jerk. There are some clues as to that, right? Like, uh, he was a he was a dude's dude, and Osric is a is a lackey, is a a toady, is a you know um, ass kissing sycophant, uh, obsequious. Um, and uh, and brown nosing, and so, and he, and he represents like how bad things have gotten in in Claudius' court. Uh, what what kind of people Claudius uh, wants to have um, around around him, and and you know in in his sort of. Uh, satirical mode, Robin Williams is really an inspired choice to play the part, but I, I think of it differently uh, in light of in light of his passing, right? Like, you know, you think of those people, you think of all the brown nosers, you know, the infuriating uh, as they are, and I know some obsequious little toads, right? Um, to a certain extent, they're they're trying to survive. Right, like that, they're just trying to survive. I mean, and like the things that the things that are so annoying about what they do are things that they feel like they have to do in order to just in order to just sort of get through the day, right? In a face in the face of a crazy world, or an uncaring one, or an unfeeling one, uh, or an indifferent world, um, you know, you gotta you gotta sort of make your peace. Uh, with the circumstances that you find, you have to sort of address life um, in in the way that you uh, in the way that you find it. And so that character, to me, just in light of of uh, in light of Robin Williams' passing, and in, uh, you know, in light of his suicide, with, uh, without getting you know lurid with the details, which would be awful, right? I, we. Um, believe he killed himself. Uh, it's there's something about that sort of character's desperate uh, clinging on, you know, desperate sort of scrambling up um, way of 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 surviving that that acquires a great deal of poignancy for me uh, in the context. So that's you know that's the one that that comes to mind for me. Mm. And he has so many great roles, definitely. Yeah, no mm. doubt. Uh, uh, yeah, oh, Captain, oh, Captain, my Captain. You know, I sent you a... Um, I want to talk about this this passage of tales, a tale, for, a tale of two cities <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> sure, sure, Cause sure. Because I sent you... So you're, you're, and, and I guess you had never, you had never read the, this novel, Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. I have started it twice. <laughs> you got through the first... <laughs> Best of times, the worst of times. Paragraph and wait, it's it also the worst of times. <laughs> <laughs> I see you got through the first clause <laughs> of the novel several times. Um, I'm but, like Tim Allen; I only do one clause at a time. <laughs> but anyway, continue. something something that you wrote in your appreciation um, really made, made me think of this passage from Dickens. What you said about sort of. Uh, uh, in light of other overthinking it discourse on the passing of celebrities and how we form relationships with them, um, you you sort of analyzed the the uh, 
you analyzed that a little more deeply and talked about sort of forming relation a relationship with the public face uh, of yes. a celebrity. That is to say, it's a it's a performance, the thing that you you form a relationship with, and you can't kind of see inside to see the sort of secret private person, right? And that it it just resonated so much uh, for me with with. Um, you know the it, a famous chapter from the first uh uh from chapter 3 of tale of two cities um uh which i guess uh, it's a substantial paragraph but i'll i'll read it uh if i can get through it without breaking up um it goes like this uh, a wonderful fact to reflect upon that every human creature is constituted to be that profound secret and mystery to every other a solemn consideration when I enter a great city by night that every one of those darkly clustered houses encloses its own secret, that every room in every one of them encloses its own secret, that every beating heart in the hundreds of thousands of breasts there is, in some of its imaginings, a secret to the heart nearest it. Something of the awfulness even of death itself is referable to this. No more can I turn the leaves of this dear book that I loved and vainly hope in time to read it all. No more can I look into the depths of this unfathomable water wherein, as momentary lights glanced into it, I have had glimpses of buried treasure and other things submerged. It was appointed that the book should shut with a spring forever and ever when I had read but a page. It was appointed that the water should be locked in an eternal frost when the light was playing on its surface and I stood in ignorance on the shore. My friend is dead. My neighbor is dead. My love, the darling of my soul, is dead. It is the inexorable consolidation and perpetuation of the secret that was always in that individuality and which I shall carry in mine to my life's end. In any of the burial places of this city through which I pass, is there a sleeper more inscrutable than its busy inhabitants are in their innermost personality to me or than I am to them? It's not a, I mean, it's, God, it's rhetorically very beautiful and has that sort of high, um, high, uh, uh, you know, high tone that Dickens is so great at is sort of inimitable for. And I hate to say, Pete, but that a tale of two cities has shut with a spring forever and ever when you had read but a page. <laughs> no, I can reopen the tale of two cities. Um, but it's it's uh, you know, there's so much uh, there's so much that's really crass, right? That comes out in the in the need to. Um, to, to make sense of these, or I, I shouldn't even say the need to make sense of these things, the, the need to fill, you know, page views and airtime minutes and, and just to fill space, you know, with bullshit, with, right, like, with sort of, uh, in the Harry Frankfurt sense of sort of non-signifying uh, speech, right, speech without reference to its its truth or falsehood. And, and I think it's, it's, we can sort of see events like this as a far more profound invitation to reflect reflect um uh to reflect and and one of the things um i i reflected on 
was the difference between the the outpouring of response following Robin Williams passing and the outpouring of response following uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's passing earlier oh. this year? I don't know if you I don't know if you saw uh, if you really thought to relate the two in your mind, but but I did uh, in the sense that they were both people whom I whom I admired greatly, right? Like they were both perform- performers of of tremendous talent and also great great craft and versatility um you know that but that where whereas there there seems to be this this outpouring of of sympathy this sort of bottomless uh well of of goodwill um as well there should be you know uh in the wake of robin williams passing i i didn't um I didn't feel the same thing in uh, in the wake of Philip Seymour Hoffman's passing, even though I mean a lot of the, uh, even though I see more more similarities and differences in the the sort of tragic, um, you know, aspects of their life and sort of struggles with addiction and depression and and uh, um, you know seemingly you know seemingly unwinnable struggle, right? Like. And and to add, like even in the comments of our very website, like people saying what to me were some pretty uncharitable things, um, and and I don't know. I suppose that I like I, I like I don't like it, but but that I I am less disturbed, you know, by the by the response uh, to Robin Williams' death because it has been far more. Uh, far more generous, and I think that that's a and and far more compassionate, right? And I think that like compassion has got to be your sort of watchword mm-hmm. at a time like this. Yeah, the com- the celebrity comparison that popped to my mind was a different one, which and it carries a different thought, and that's the difference between the response to Paul Walker's death and the death of Robin Williams, where with Paul Walker, this is a guy who. He may, he's you know fairly young still. Was he's four years old or so, forty years old or so, and has made a bunch of movies over the course of his career that have not really been particularly all that meaningful to me personally. But but recently, I'd become more enthusiastic about the Fast and the Furious franchise and those movies. And when he died, I suddenly felt like this person. I felt much closer, right, to this person's life's work. And surprisingly so. Like I felt – I felt – and again, I kind of ignored a lot of the people who were dismissing it and saying, well, there's problems in Syria. Why should you care about Paul Walker? And it's like, well, it's not a choice between one or the other. Right? Like my relative caring about Syria is going to be the same uh, whether Paul Walker is dead or not. I don't like – I don't have – I mean I may not be doing something about it this very minute, but that's a whole other question. The main thing – I wasn't really thinking so much about that. I was thinking about the people who were mourning Paul Walker, and it felt like there was a real familiarity and a real uh, sense of of closeness and of, of sort of surprise at closeness, right? That it's like this is this person that we never never knew, of course, because it's a celebrity. This is a person who died in an accident uh, far away from where we are, and yet I, I somehow feel a kinship with this person, uh, and that makes me sad. And it, it make, there's a sweet sadness to it, and that it's like we've lost this person, but this person was was a good person. Right. This was a person who was, who was, you know, meaningfully improved people's lives, and he made, he entertained people, and he gave back, and he did the good stuff. You know, like, and you know, whatever. There was just like, there was something like this. Is, this too is a human being, right? And there, and maybe this is sort of some a certain amount of what his characters came across with. With Robin Williams, this is somebody who I grew up being kind of constantly 
uh, exposed to, right? Constantly exposed to his work, constantly connecting with his work, always something relevant about what he was doing and my life, right? Always some sort of connection like that was present. You know, whether it's the Disney movies, which are, of course, this huge presence in all of our lives, or staying up late and watching comedy shows, or even comic relief, right? And like, I mean, how many people saw comic relief as their first really big celebrity charity thing, right? Like, how much of celebrity charity as it exists today uh, is owes something to comic relief and the encounters there and, and the movies and Goodwill Hunting and, and all this other stuff. Uh, it seems that every step of life, you know, Robin Williams is this presence. And I feel like, over, and over the course of my life, that this was somebody that I felt like I, I, I knew, I guess, because it was somebody who was always there, right? Even though it wasn't a person that I associated with. And then when he dies, I, I feel so tremendously separated from him, like so far away, right? Like, like I could do the genie voice, right? And I could like do the genie parts and recite them from memory, right? And I could like – I could tuck my sisters in at night while talking about Robin Williams. And he, is, he was present. Discussion of him, projections of him, you know, reflections of him were present in those very delicate, intimate moments for years and years and years. And here he dies, and I've, it's just this vast, uh, unconquerable gulf between human beings has opened, right? And, and there's this tearing away as opposed to with Paul Walker where there was a – there felt like there was a coming closer and a mutual recognition, kind of a for who the bell tolls kind of moment. Rather than this one, it just seemed like the page was just torn. And it was just interesting, the, those energies. I think part of it is how they died. Part of it is when they died. Part of it – but I, I, just, I just think that part of it is just the nature of who they are and how they connected with people. Um, yeah, that's yeah. – I mean that's definitely true. How, how – um how Robin Williams, I mean, I think being a, being a comedian of the particular type that, that he was, which is to say sort of highly energized, you know, kind of uh, um, what, un, right, unpredictable. Uh, I remember those comic relief. Uh, we got them. We would rent them from the video store on tapes. I was probably way too young for some of the material in, in those things. But, like, those, I know, I feel like I know that generation's lineup of comics more than I know anyone working in stand-up comedy today, right? Like, because we would just watch them over and over and over, my brother and me. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Billy Crystal, Sinbad. You know, uh, Dennis Leary, yeah, Paul Rodriguez, um, yeah, Dennis Leary, Bobcat Goldthwaite, right? Like, God, remember him? That that was, uh, yeah, it was a, a sort of a, a, a hell of a thing, and and yeah, it's uh, it did sort of. You know what I think it does is it is it highlights the um the highlights the gulf between the sort of public meanings or your personal meanings uh that you associate with a person's work and and the person's own sort of private meetings meanings i mean uh, uh the person's own sort of private um private life it sort of under underscores that that difference that's always that's always sort of latent um but uh but brought it home for some reason in this in this sad instance yep well we don't want to talk about this the whole time it would be a downer uh (laughs) is there anything quite so committed to just just 
overwhelming and overpowering the mood of a moment. Is there anything <laughs> is there any explosion so large that it can shatter the steel cage of of uh, alienation or not alienation like is there, of the self? Is there any set of C4 charges so <laughs> Well distributed that <laughs> this giant uh, dilapidated edifice of sorrow that we have built <laughs> could be felled uh, with a single touch of a button as we cling uh, as to a rope suspended from a helicopter. Um, <laughs> is, is there any such thing? Uh, no, probably not. We should just wrap here, right? Uh, but Matt, <laughs> I need a job. I need a job. So badly do I need a job. <laughs> That's oh god, we have to talk about that character cuz that character <laughs> there's so many there's so many things to to talk about with that. Um no, Sylvester Stallone, born... We're fa- talking about The Expendables oh, 3. Sorry, are you yeah, going to yeah. say what it is? No. And are you going to say that there's spoilers? No, no. Oh, yeah. neither, neither of those things. Um, yeah. Yes, uh, Expendables 3, uh, which was released this weekend, and Pete and I have both seen, and is a glorious uh, and fun... Um, fun film. I, I would say, I mean, I don't know. If, if I were ranking, I really like the, uh, the first Expendables movie. I feel like it had a kind of um, sweetness and it had a, uh, it had a, a small scope. That, you know mm. that I that I appreciated, right? And and all uh, and also like a lot of stuff. The fact that the fact that it was small and was sort of a lot of it practical, uh, like really the explosions done instead of like CGI'd in later, as you could sort of see in in Expendables three. Like the uh, the climactic fight between Sylvester Stallone and and Mel Gibson. I thought like. Well, you know, th- this really it was it was cooler when it was Steve Austin, right? And you and you had the sense that like I don't know these guys were really wailing on each other, um, but but no, a really good uh, a really good um, a really good film. Uh, the see, uh, I have I have the opposite perspective. Oh, I see. Just to say okay. real quickly, no, which is that I've I've liked the Expendables movies more as they've progressed huh. uh, because the first I felt like the first Expendables movie was an example of the genre of movie that was being deconstructed. Right, they say we're going to take all these people who are famous for doing this movie, and we're going to do a movie about these people making those movies. And the first Expendables movie uh, was a movie that that lived within that space, and it was an action movie. The second and third Expendables movies are much funnier, right? Like they're they're much more comedic, uh, and I feel like it's a more compelling uh there's a more compelling case for that movie to be made for me right like a movie where it is a an action comedy as opposed to sort of like a grim uh action blockbuster now i mean part of it is that i never really watched the rambo movies right like i never really watched but i love commando i like i a movie that aspires to commando for me is more attractive than a movie that aspires to rambo Uh uh right and and this movie more than the other expendables movies really expired to commando uh down to like the use of the one-liners and like 
like very very ridiculous manners. Uh-huh. Although it's hard to beat Expendables two with the machine gun and the smart car scene, uh, which was just so glorious and wonderful. Yep. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I just wanted to put that in there. That I think I, I totally see your point that it was more grounded. Uh, that the uh, the world of the film was uh, somewhat more internally contiguous and self contained, and thus that could speak to a certain greater authenticity of the battles. I do think there were some huge gaps in this movie in terms of its. You know, production. Uh, the worst, some of the worst green screening I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and that fight with Mel Gibson. I mean, there's a whole. You could have a whole talk about this. But the moment where Sylvester Stallone shoots Mel Gibson twice in the chest, Mel Gibson twitches violently while expressing no other sign of being shot, because this is a PG-13 movie, and you're not allowed to. To show like blood and guts of him being shot, then they sh- cut back to, to Sylvester Stallone, and then they cut back to Mel Gibson, and he's covered in blood that seems to have like been painted on him while the camera was away from him. Uh-huh. Right, like this was a movie that uh, that hewed with great ferocity to the letter of the PG thirteen law uh-huh. and not its spirit. <laughs> right, it was like you're allowed to show people who are covered in blood, but you're not allowed to show blood coming out of people. So they uh, they have a lot of people who get shot and fall down, and then the camera cuts away and cuts back and they're soaked right and it was just like things like that kind of took away from the reality of the film uh but i do like all of the fun jokes and i like the unveiling of the characters and i like the references and discussions of what's happened to the actors in real life and the really sort of interesting way i thought it was much better done this time around with wesley snipes than it was done in expendables 2 when they did it with Dolph lundgren where they actually told his true life story right you yes. remember that from Expendables 2, where yes. they told Dolph Lundgren's true life story of being a chemical engineer, right? And then they... Um, yeah, and and it's, it's true. And it's, what you're saying, like, about, about the first Expendables movie, right? Like, Dolph Lundgren's drug problem, you know, was the, fir- was the thing that they had to, uh, you know, overcome in the first Expendables movie, right? Like, and that, that was... That is a different kind of thing than, like, you know, oh, we're going to have a... F- we're going to have fun with the... Uh, we're going to have a fun with the, the person's life life story, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. But just, like, the moment where they talk about Wesley Snipes' tax evasion and his time in Africa and how he's been sort of exiled away from the thing that he loves, right? And this idea that, I mean, this also has to do with sort of what we talked about with regards to Robin Williams, like blurring, these are people who are like themselves not certain of what side of their life is reality and what side of their life is this bombastic fiction, right? And that's the joke, is, you know, is that like, Antonio Banderas is like, I need a job, (laughs) right? Like, and it's the character saying it, but there's also a way in which the public persona of the actor is saying it, and there's a a way in which the performance of the actor is trying to tell you that they also kind of feel the way that their public persona feels. Uh-huh. And, they've, and they've kind of come to this place uh, in their lives as their careers progress. But anyway, I think, I think that's part of why I like these movies, because that's, there's a lot of consonance between different ways in which you can interpret the story, and lots of sort of elegance in the way that the jokes play together with each other and caught across. I, but need, yeah, the, tax- I need a job! Yeah, he went to Swaziland. He went to a place called Swaziland. <laughs> it's like, yes, he did. I mean, I'm not actually positive if Wesley Snipes did go to Swaziland. I know he went to Africa, but it seems like the kind of detail that they would leave is true, right? Um, but the, the yeah, I mean, in in the film, it's what it's uh, in the film. It, he's dodging the question, right? It's like, why why did you go to jail? Well, for killing a whole bunch of people. Yeah. But no, he he went to jail for for, for tax evasion. Tax evasion. <laughs> 
But yeah, and so they, of course, they have to like ex- they have to like action movie it up and put it in the trappings of an action movie, yep. which which is done very shoddily. It's almost handmade in this one, right? Like it's like hand programmed on your power book. Uh, some of the some of the effects in this movie, but I mean, this was a movie. As much as we say, I mean, I like this movie a lot. I thought this movie was very under reviewed. I thought it was like really much much better than like a thirty four or whatever it was given on Rotten Tomatoes. Although I guess that's more a measure of how many people liked it rather than how much the people who liked it liked it. Uh, and this is a movie that if you're an action movie enthusiast, I would highly recommend seeing because uh, it's just so much fun. Uh, and, and it plays with so many tropes. Just the dirt bike jumping up the seven stories, the boat jumping up out of the water onto the back of the flatbed yep. truck with the line like, this is my kind of boat. Right? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> it's just so good. Um, the line where Dolph Lundgren has like the funky machine that he got, right? The little the arm console that the kid also has, and he was making fun of it before, but now he's the one who has. He's like, oh yeah, I've had it for a while. Yeah, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, but there is a really, I don't know. I mean, there's other things to talk about with regards to this movie, but there's a really difficult to parse, complicated heart of this movie, and and that movie that that difficult to parse complicated part is around the Mel Gibson character yeah. and what exactly he's trying to accomplish right. which is not you could say it's not clear and it's confused and i think that would be accurate i think that partly that's also the way in which his character resembles his public persona right like mel gibson's character in this movie is somebody who was part of the crew but then went like way off the reservation and we're all kind of uncomfortable talking about what he did and when he comes back we kind of really don't like him and he's we see him as a guy who's like really turned nasty but there's some part of him that's still got this capability that that we kind of have forgotten he still has that tattoo in his arm he's still an action star and he's gonna show us but my, my Downton Abbey moment for this movie, and, uh-huh. and this, we do this in the TV recaps, and I felt like there was a really strong – there were a couple of good ones in this movie uh, uh, where it's a scene where they're not talking about the main plot, but you can look at it and you can gauge from it some sort of doorway to interpretation of the rest of the movie. It's when he's in the art museum, right? And he, or he goes to the art, or the art gallery. He goes to the art gallery and he sees this abstract piece of art that's sort of communicating a quarter of an American flag in black and white and a bunch of other play with like form and shape, right? But there was definitely something about it that resembled an American flag in some way. And he said, do you think when the painter was making this, they knew that it would cost this much, that it would be this expensive? Right. I mean, what is it really? Just oil on canvas, right? You know, and then the, and the guy goes, uh, so $3 million? And he's like, deal. Right, uh. and I just I feel like there's so many things that are caught up in those like few lines, um, right? And because one of them is sort of uh, this is a movie that for me recalled the old rag and bone shop of Yates a lot, right? The sort of like what is a you know an old man is uh, trapped inside a dying animal, right? This idea that our bodies are giving out. Then uh, the, the movie I felt like uh, was you know the inevitability of the collapse of the building, right? It's like oh we only have one percent left, and this building is going to literally turn to dust under us, and you have to kind of ascend with your friends to heaven, right? Uh, you you have to like finish this business and deal with the things that you have on Earth because the Earth beneath you is going to crumble, right? Uh, and there's this idea that that everybody is falling apart, all of my friends are dead. There's the jingling of the dog tags, which represents this like you know you're one of the few people who are left. You're, you have this survival guilt that's happening. And, and, and so he looks at this painting. What is this painting? It's just canvas and oil. You know, what is this flesh, right? What is this body that I'm in? You know, what is, and, and that's particularly notable when you're talking about a movie that's, that deals in muscle, 
right? People talk about muscles in regards to this movie a lot. These are people, these are movie stars whose bodies were on display for us. And part, a big part of the performance of these characters was their bodies. And, and their bodies, of course, and all of their vascular wretchedness and their sort of like leathery brawn uh, are still on display in this movie. Uh, you know, like Sylvester Stallone's, you know, kind of crocodile leather, rich Corinthian leather flesh uh, in this movie. Uh, it's still in full on display. Does the, did the painter know when he started this work. And to me, what I, when I see this, is like, did all of us, did all of us action stars know when we started playing cops who were going to go beyond the law or like veterans who were abandoned by our country and were out for justice, right? Or when we came and we were playing, you know, like Hercules in New York or when we were doing, you know, all the little things that we were doing, when we, when we were, you know, Passenger 57 or whatever, did we know that we were going to get to this point where we were this huge commercial commodity and people bought and sold us? Right, and they bought and sold us for millions of dollars. Did we know that this was going to happen? That's and of actually, course, yeah, that's a really interesting point, especially with our our sort of parsing of the difference between the first two 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 movies. Right, the, it it is a great leap between the Expendables and the Expendables Two. It's not so much of a leap between the Expendables Two and and the Expendables Three, but like the Expendables, uh, the original um, is about sort of paying the price. Uh, for a life spent as a soldier and mercenary, right? The Expendables 3 is about paying the price for a life spent as an action movie star. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly, yeah, exactly. And, and, it's, and I think that that's what when, – when Mel Gibson ha- – he has this other monologue that is just confounding, which is the monologue when they're, the people are chained up and he describes what it was like to sort of go into these areas and kill all the bad guys on behalf of the government and then have the government come in and clean up the mess after them and take all the credit, right? And this idea that what we did was meaningless and now I hate the government, right? Like, like it's a repeat repudiation of the story of the action hero is what it is and he's saying like ah, it was it is wrong that we were action heroes or that like it, it is worthless that we were action heroes yeah uh like he, he's not i mean that whole thing about like i don't like the government because of what they did uh i mean to me that also sort of speaks of of old men right and like that's kind of the the political language of old men it's sort of like oh, i hate the government for reasons i'm not going to specify right it's like i'm not saying i peter i'm not going to specify them i the old man am not going <laughs> to specify why i hate the government right uh because it doesn't warrant specification because you lived through it don't you know right like um but yeah just this idea that it's not that it's like he paints this heroic picture of going in and killing the bad guys and oh we killed a lot of bad guys right we killed so many right and it's, it's like he, he acknowledges that they actually did save lots and lots of lives right supposedly you know, and there's even seems to be an implication in this speech that the existence of the action hero was somewhat of a policy arm, right? In like actual real global politics. I kind of got that vibe out of it a little bit where it's like we were here we, – we as performing these heroic acts, right? Like we set up an expectation and a discourse of power that in turn enabled the government to act in a certain way, right? Like we won the Cold War and then they cast us aside, right? And that kind of thing, right? And not like John Voight in Mission Impossible, but literally like I, Mel Gibson, am part of like – I was at Gallipoli, all right? I won won Gallipoli (laughs) and and like part of why the government of Australia can hold its head high is because what I did on that screen and now I get a DUI? Is that what you're talking about? (laughs) And now I'm an anti-Semite? Is that what you're talking about? Like I hate all of you, right? And it's like – and that's the idea is that like – 
And what does Sylvester Stallone do? But he sort of like gets into his super intense place and like, you know, thinks about the people that he cares about and whether he's going to do it for Adrian, right? And it ends with a big fist fight and, you know, and he's getting punched and he's punching, right? And it's like, uh, there's, there, there was something about this movie where the Sylvester Stallone performance felt a little bit similar to his performance in the movie Rocky Balboa, right? Rocky Six. Right, like where it's like you take all you can take and you keep moving forward, right? Uh, this sort of aging Rocky, uh, and this idea that Sylvester Stallone has to kind of rediscover this. Of course, the, the Sylvester Stallone side is even more sophisticated than that because it's not just like he wants to be an action hero; is that he finds value not just in the lives of the people he cares about, but it's like the the that he finds he his problems are caused the conflict is caused because he values the lives of his friends he doesn't want them to die doing this business but then what he realizes is that the thing that they do together is such a huge part of why he values their lives right and that they value that about themselves right right and so they value being action heroes and they value being buddy action heroes and so it's like you know it's like no mel gibson we don't have to be totally alienated washed up former stars you know like we could do the longest day we can be the we can be the cavalry that rides to the rescue and we can do it together uh and, and that's something that we find value in even as uh you know that one percent inevitably ticks down to zero right like someday we're not going to be able to do this anymore uh, so, right. right, yeah, I mean, there are, there are a couple of interesting directions to go, and w- one, I think, has to do with the, the relationship to the villain, right? Like, there's, there's, I think, an interesting progression to be traced from Eric Roberts uh, with, um, uh, with his sort of puppet general, right? Eric Roberts is the CIA bad guy with his sort of puppet general down in uh, uh, South America somewhere. Um, it's, is it specified? No, it's an imaginary, it's an imaginary place. Uh, d- from him to, uh, uh, who is it? Van Damme, right? Uh, in the second one, uh, as a, as the villain whose name is Villain. <laughs> the God is for Satan. <laughs> That's not the quote, but it's like <laughs> the, the Satan. The God is, is Satan's pet. Yeah. I actually, I watched them all this week. I prepared for this uh, for this weekend by uh, by putting on both um, both earlier Expendables movie to to Mel Gibson, right? Like from Eric Roberts to Van Damme to uh, to Mel Gibson, I think is an interesting um, is an interesting progression. And then uh, the um, then there's also like there's a sort of interesting. Uh, thing about like well, what is the emotional center uh, of the film right like and in in uh, the expendables one it 's that speech by Mickey Rourke you know uh, it, about how he uh, uh, how he witnessed a woman actually commit suicide by by jumping off a off a bridge and and did not uh, lift a hand to save her, and he knew he was dead inside uh, and and that 's when he got out of the game. Um, to uh you know um to the sort of mourning the loss of uh of Liam Hemsworth in the second one to uh to some of the stuff to some of the like we're a team stuff you know in uh in expendables 3 um the uh i think of like the the uh four motorcycles lined up 
right, as mm. Sylvester Stallone and his expendables, his young people expendables, yes. uh, his actually expendable, or at least so yeah. he thinks expendables, <laughs> yes. right, like fly off, and then the four, you know, uh, uh, Statham and Dolph Lundgren, et cetera, on their bikes, standing, sort of standing watch as they, uh, as the plane taxis uh, to the runway and takes off. Um, uh, as, as uh, you know, I don't know, that. And then, like, the, the, of course, the big reveal in silhouette of them when they come, when they show up again and go on the final... Uh, go on the final mission. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky. I, I think it's hard to locate. I, I, I felt like I located most of the emotional heart of this movie on the villain side, but that's just. I mean, part of that is just Mel Gibson is just so freaking good on camera. It's it's obscene. Like he's just he's just so. I don't know. He's like Tom Cruise, right? He's just got this tremendous. I think he's just so tremendous on film in his level of focus and his level of control and his ability to communicate with his face. Uh, but um. I feel like this movie is is given an almost Shakespearean level of, of additional uh, richness just by the absolute scene stealing of Antonio Banderas, <laughs> right? Like, like it's that this this is a movie. This is an Expendables movie that has a fool, right? It has like that has a wise fool. Yeah, sure. I mean, it has a fool. It also has like it has the main plot recapitulated uh, by a, recapitulated by a younger set of lovers. Yeah, you know, that's right? true. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, just, yeah, it's just like a Midsummer Night's Railgun, right? Like... <laughs> uh-huh. Uh huh. So, what do you think about Antonio Banderas? Well, Antonio Banderas. Well, uh, he just he he the way that his character relates to the pasts of his character of his friends, right? And like, so so Antonio Banderas's enthusiasm for telling the story of the great. Spanish commando team, right? Like, and you know, the greatest sniper, the secret is patience, right? And and this idea that Antonio, that Antonio Banderas tells us the story of the awesomest action heroes that he ever knew, you know, he's telling the story also of like, you know, Rambo and Commando and like, you know, Desperado. And, I mean, well, he's telling the story of like, of of Spanish, I guess, of like sort of not English action cinema, right? Like, he's not. I don't know enough about. Uh, I don't think. I mean, I, A, I don't know enough to be sure, but B, I kind of don't think that it's that robust of a comparison. But I think the idea is that the language of the action hero is a language that exists in multiple cultures. And we might not be familiar with the action heroes of other cultures, but those still come forward and they still exist, right? And so, like, Antonio Banderas is telling the story of the friends that he knows, and we see because – we don't have the extra baggage of them being the people we're already thinking about. We can see ourselves uh, from a new light in the way that Antonio Banderas sees them. And we can also see our sense of loss in their passing, right? Uh, which I think it can also be our own sense of loss at the sort of irrelevance of the action movie heroes of our youth, too, right? In addition to sort of this idea of humanity and valuing people and the loss of our friends and all this stuff. Um, and so there's a way in which, uh, yes, there's an emotional heart 
that lies in the sort of the machismatic bro friendships. You know, there and then the sort of dramatic parallels between the old and the young. Like that's one of the hearts that they're trying to set up. But there's also this heart of like, look at that awesome thing that happened. Right? Like, wasn't that scene awesome? You know, like when I see like this movie with the dirt bike jumping up the seven stories and whatnot, that's more of the Antonio Banderas's characters relaying. That's like the meta action movie. That's like when you're sitting at the at the at the lunch table, you know, in like elementary or middle school, and you're like, and then the guy went da 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 and then all these things blew up and it was crazy. You know, like the joy. Uh, just, I mean, this is this takes me back to the very, very end of Expendables Two, which I thought had just a wonderful credits song with, uh, you know, I just want to celebrate another day of living, right? Uh, and and that that I know, yes, they're murdering people, but like, it's that that's something else we could address even briefly. It's like we don't really see what they're doing as being murder. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's true. That's absolutely right. (laughs) Like, yeah, like we don't really see all of those faceless. Like this is like at the time when these movies were being made, we didn't see what Arnold Schwarzenegger was doing to all of those people as murder, you know? And, and nowadays I feel like we're kind of on the hook to have a bit more of a sophisticated idea about it. And it's supposed to be dark, right? Like if they kill all these people, it's supposed to be sort of like gritty, dark, violence as opposed to sort of like fun happy gunning down of people right? like care, carefree genocide like, look at all the people fall down on the hill like these so heroic uh and it's like just total disregard for the lives of particularly of foreigners right being like well they're foreign people so we don't care if they live or die and this movie indulges in that hugely with an entire army of a very imaginary country where like not a single person's face is shown right right like they're all standing you know with their back facing you uh i mean i'm sure that that's not entirely true there's faces that are shown but i don't remember any of them right like i remember their hats and i remember like them running around well, no not really they're in they're in motorcycle masks or they're sort of seen yeah. in silhouette with their berets right like yeah. the generals are are uh, or the you know some of the officers are shown having faces um but the uh, you know I don't know but the uh, the guys the guys getting blown up may as well be tank parts. Yes, yes, exactly. And so, like, we don't really see what they're doing as murder. We see it as a form of self-actualization and expression. <laughs> it's almost as if it's some sort of work of representative art of the, the feats of the human spirit, rather than really about killing people. <laughs> Which might be why people like these movies in the first place, right? Like, uh, not because of the murder, although given the box office, it might be given the box office of the movie, it might be that people wanted there to be more murder and were turned off with it being PG thirteen, uh, or maybe. They the fact that it was pirated and all that other stuff and all that other nonsense heard it. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I don't know. I think that there's there's something in that sort of spirit of like what they're doing is is this sort of like storytelling art that that much less than in even Expendables one does this resemble actual murder. Uh-huh. All right, it's like it's like fun stories, right? And yeah. it's, it's it's fun stories against like feelings of of personal loss, betrayal, and anger, right? Um, and this idea of like. You know, do the stories survive? Can the stories be passed down? I guess it's part of it. I don't know. Sort of like, and and also like the 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 thing about the Antonio Banderas character, just one extra like dimension that I think is is latent in it is like, do do you remember these actors' names? You know, (laughs) remember the names of the actors who were in the awesome movies that you liked. You know what I mean? Like they 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 were suffering for your sins. You know what I mean? Like they they were uh, and they need a job. (laughs) 
<laughs> and not, not just, hey, I, you know, overthinking it. You love actors who work, but I need a job. I will work. I will work. Actually, I'm looking at his IMDb page. It looks like he has a bunch of stuff coming up. I, I'm not. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm not. I don't think uh, Antonio Banderas is hurt, hurting for, uh, you know. Yeah. That was the best acting in the whole movie. It was Antonio Banderas acting as if he were professionally desperate. Right. <laughs> Although I do really, really love, I just really love the Harrison Ford line about Bruce Willis. Yeah. <laughs> when it's like, he's out of the picture. <laughs> like right. he actually says that about Bruce Willis's character. He's out of the picture. As in like, he's not going to be in this movie that we're making. <laughs> uh, and he's like graduated because he has too much work. He doesn't need to do this anymore. Well, right. Like, and wasn't that the thing? He wanted too much money. Probably, yeah. Uh, I, th- I think that's what happened, right? Like, yeah. he, start- he stopped uh, – he was, he was going to um, uh, return and reprise his role, uh, but he, he asked for too much money, and they were like, sorry, can't. We'll get Harrison Ford instead. Yeah. Uh, I think there's another line where they're like, how much you get paid for this? And they're like, not enough, is what <laughs> Sylvester Stallone says. <laughs> There's another reference. To that. Uh, we get some points on the back end, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, yeah. when it gets, uh, we keep it light till it's time to get dark, and then we get pitch black. Yep. Yeah, that's it. That's Expendables too. Yeah, here here we can't get pitch black. Uh, we keep it light until it's time to get dark, and then the camera cuts away. We get pitch black off camera, and you cut back to see the aftermath. Yeah, yeah. I also think in this one there's the the the, the, the there's the Wesley Snipes jingle jingle throughout uh-huh. the movie, which is just such a captivating moment. Yeah. I mean, he's he's still got it clearly. Yeah, I don't know if he can hold down a whole movie, but he's still quite the performer. Uh, and just that jingle jingle. Well, and, <laughs> like, uh, and like but, actually, like I I feel like the younger I feel like the younger people suffer in comparison to. Oh yeah. Uh, in comparison to the the older stars, and I mean, maybe there's a selection bias because they were cast by you know the people, and so maybe they they're stacking the deck. But like, um, you know, I don't know, Glenn Powell and Victor Ortiz and Kellen Lutz and uh, Rhonda. How do you say her last name? Rousey. Yeah, sure. Uh, and she's a UFC fighter, and um, Victor Ortiz is a boxer, isn't he? Um, and uh you know i don't know this uh this this thing i mean ronda rousey is is uh apparently like her star is on the rise and she's got a whole bunch of like ma- you know mainstream movie stuff coming up she's going to be in fast and furious 7 mm-hmm. uh and and stuff like that and you know i thought she was uh, i thought a lot of of what she did was great i thought some of the hand to hand stuff in the on the like the casino floor um in that scene with Antonio Banderas uh, was good, but but you know I don't know she's clearly like uh, she's clearly uh, she's clearly like a tough individual first right and uh, and an actor second, whereas like Harrison Ford you know is an actor first and a, and a, a tough individual a tough guy. Uh, second uh, and a and a tough guy second right like yeah. and and i actually like i think that is the proper order of things right yes. like like because these aren't actual real warriors they are 
actors. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right, right, exactly. They're not actual real wars. They are, yeah. you know, uh, choreographed fights and, you know, uh, green screen stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and like close ups where you have to like convey something with your face, but not too much because God, God forbid, uh, you go over the top, you know, because it'll be, it'll be awful. Right, right, right. I felt like Ronda Rousey was by far the best of the young Expendables. Yeah, sure. But that, but that she needed to be complemented by people who expressed those other aspects of the action stars better, right? Like people who were who had a similar, who had a more, uh, you know, Schwarzeneggerian sense of of, of uh, performative impressiveness. Right, right. Like, like, how come there's not like a huge bodybuilder? How come there's no Bizarro Schwarzenegger? How come right. there's no like Bizarro Stallone? Right, like, how come? I mean, yeah, it's like the face of the young action hero has changed. I thought Liam Liam Hemsworth was a great choice for Expendables too. I think sure. he was perfect. He was perfect in that role because you could believe that this is a guy who's going to be a big movie star, right? Like, and and he also did a great job of playing. Uh, contemporary soldier and differentiating the idea of the contemporary soldier in popular cinema from the idea of like the commando in 80s and 90s cinema right like i think liam hemsworth did all those things in that part well, and the, part right and this is it's it's really sorry to, to stop you pete but, oh, no, but go for this it. is um uh i think this is really important right i think the relationship to the next generation is something that's that's really important like expendables one was bleak right yes it was it was almost like mickey rourke was was the father and uh, and Stallone at Alia were the uh, were the kids, you know, yeah. old old though they were, and there was a sense that like with uh, Jason Statham and Charisma Carpenter, um, not you know, kind of not being able to work it out, there was a sense that like a, a new generation is impossible, right? Like we can't yeah. get together, we can't have relationships that that yield families, you know. Right. Um, the only family is the sort of bro family of the. Uh, uh, you know, is the bro family of the of the old tough guys, right? Um, the uh, the uh, the Expendables too. Um, everything you're saying, everything you're saying is right uh, about uh, uh, Liam Hemsworth, and it's um, uh, he he represents. You know, um, whereas these guys represent what Vietnam era soldiers, he represents a uh, an Iraq and Afghanistan war, right? A 21st century uh, soldier, right? Yeah. Um, but but he's a W two employee, right? Like yeah, yeah. he's signed on for you know for the long haul with. Uh, with these guys, you know, and, and, you know, served in the army, right? Like was a, was a, you know, a person with a tour of duty in the army and, and, you know, had a commitment to uh, serve a certain amount of time and served out his time. And, and then afterwards joined the, joined the, you know, the expendables, the, um, uh, the, the mercenary, the mercenary brigade. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, and, uh, and, Right. The the four young expendables, the expendable expendables, right, are contract labor. Yeah. They're not W two employees, right? They're not getting benefits from their yeah. time. Uh they really the, shouldn't get the tattoos at the end. Right. Because they're still very fairly temporary people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's right, they are they are part of a twenty first century casual economy, right? Yeah. Whereas despite his being uh despite his being a sort of young soldier and and uh referable to um, you know, post two thousand and one uh, wars in the in the Middle East. Um, the uh, 
it it represents still a, a kind of a dated idea of the kind of economic relationships at play, right? Like yeah. between employer and employee, there is a kind of social contract. Um, and, and you sort of see that like one of the things they do is, uh, is say the rhyme for him. It, it actually ends the second movie, you know, mumbo jumbo's going to who do you mumbo yeah. jumbo's going to who do you, you know, they say their rhyme that they that they say that it's is from a racist uh, early 20th century poem about the Congo. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, uh, just apropos of, of nothing, that is their, that happens to be their tradition when one of their brothers... I think it's apropos of a lot of things. Well, when, the casual when, racism in these movies is yeah, a real thing. Yeah, totally. Sure. When, when one of their brothers falls, this is the way that they, like, yeah. as this sort of right great white colonials coming into these third world situations and uh, blowing them up... Um, you know, this is the thing that they say for fallen comrades. Uh, no, no one gets that, right? I get no one dies really, but no one gets that in the um, uh, in the current movie. And you sort of wonder if they write if they would, you know, yeah. uh, if um, you know if Victor Ortiz was was uh, killed in battle or something like uh, if they would if they would uh, yeah. if they would get that that treatment. Um, they are much more. You know, I don't know. I and now that I've, I, I really want to sort of delve into this idea of sort of a, a, a casual labor economy, right? Like yeah. these four people g- joined the Expendables on Task Rabbit. You know, yeah. <laughs> right? They're the Lyft yeah. drivers uh, to Liam Hemsworth, like uh, unionized taxi driver. You know, uh, of of um, of mercenary killers. So. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting. I mean, it's an interesting development. It's sort of truer to the world that we that we live in, you know, uh, the the model of the the four young expendables. Um, yeah. I mean, I'd add an additional dimension to it, which struck me as I was watching the movie, which is that they are a a the they are the idea of what a futuristic next generation soldier looked like twenty years ago. It's like there's a hacker, a guy who rides dirt bikes, a dude with a mohawk who does technology, right, and a girl. Right? Like, like that. This is like like particularly the guy in the dirt bike seems to me like a you know a flagrant foul in, in uh, the idea of like this is what the next generation is going to be like. You know, was it going to be on a skateboard? <laughs> like it's like have you have you looked at what contemporary action movies are like? Like they don't ride dirt bikes. <laughs> like it's uh, it's very grimy and nasty, right? Like and um. It just like like it just seems that these things are like totally awesome yeah. in a very nineties kind right, of right. Like speaking speaking of Harrison Ford, right? Like the greatest dirt bike work in action movies was done in World War II, right? Yeah, in, yeah. in like Last Crusade. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So it's like, well, what is a? I don't think that these are people who really represent a credible. The, it, it says it doesn't say to me that the Expendables really understand what the next generation is all about, or that they're particularly good at recruiting the best of the next generation. Though that wasn't really what he was after in the first place. It definitely it, it makes it more sense now that I'm talking about it that Kelsey Grammer himself also wouldn't necessarily have his finger on the pulse, right? Like uh, like they don't they don't recruit the guys who are fighting at the street race, right? Like uh, yeah, that's a good point. 
You know, they don't, they, they go to this street, the, the moment where they go to the street race is the most authentic engagement with contemporary action cinema because it's the Fast and the Furious reference. When they go to the parking garage where the cars are all lined up because that scene is in every Fast and the Furious movie. You know, that whole motif of like them all with the headlights on and them all in front of the headlights. Um, and, and so like, okay, if they were going to make something that's like a modern day action movie, that's where they would find their heroes. But instead they're like, oh, these guys are – he calls them pussies, right? Which was like a strange – you know, it was a strong choice. But, um, but uh, it's like that word was a little bit too offensive for PG-13. Yeah, I, I, thought, um, so, I thought so also and, and for, a, for a modern sensibility or my sensibility anyway. But like it's actually – what he says because like this – it actually struck me at the time. Uh, I think he says, if I heard it correctly, these guys are pussy. Right. Oh, that is to oh, say. That is to say. They, it's not that they they themselves are, uh, you know, uh, are not masculine to the point where we, you know, deride them by comparing them to lady parts. Um, right. It's that they exemplify a quality of lady parts ness. You know, that is uh, 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 not to be desired in your uh, in yeah. your action So maybe stars. maybe it's a diss on the Fast and the Furious. That's probably what it is. It's like it's a backhanded diss on the Fast and the Furious. And I don't particularly, you know, I don't I don't abide that. But no, but um, <laughs> I will say, but Ronda Rousey of all those characters, like the UFC fighter, right, the female UFC fighter, that has some currency. Right there's like that's that's something that you see in action movies now, and it's also kind of groundbreaking, right? Like, uh, and that's kind of new. But the guy who has the machine thing, which can hack the jam, the signal, you're jamming a radio signal. Like, that's your futuristic technology. You, in well, well, like, a, you're jamming a radio signal, and b, you don't check Mel Gibson for transmitters when you put them <laughs> in the back of the van. <laughs> right. You guys are supposed to be good at this and you don't yeah. realize that like hey, we can, you know, I don't know. They I I yeah. felt like I felt like Mel Gibson stringing him up was too good for them. I felt they should have been shown Apocalypto on repeat or something. <laughs> <laughs> they, yeah, they definitely were the, the the three dude the three dude expendables the three dude like you know yeah the three dude uh, I don't even know what form it is that they have to fill out uh, a ten ninety nine I'm not sure what's that oh no you did it's a W nine as yep. uh, and you can either do it yourself or through like a loan out corporation which could be like a single member LLC of death um, <laughs> you know that's uh, yeah. But yeah, so those people, they, they, they were the weakness of the movie. Um, the, the, not just those, not, I don't want to play at the feel of those actors necessarily, but just those characters. Like those characters didn't accomplish in the movie what they needed to accomplish to tell the story that the rest of the movie was telling. Um, and I, you either wanted to go one way or the other with them. You wanted to either make them more credible as successors to the Expendables, or you wanted to make them like less successful as, as successors. To the yeah, yeah, if they were the Keystone Cops. Right, like, yeah. and, and then the 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 pitch would be, well, we still got to stay around. I mean, look at these kids, you know. Um, yeah, that. And like, uh, oh, they got the tattoo. Look, I got the tattoo, and they like spelled it wrong. Yeah. Or it's, I changed the bird to a unicorn. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's a monster skull. It's a different skull. It's who not would that- we? Who would we get as like the overthinking it next generation? Right, like. Like a bunch of bunch of kids in their twenties, just out of school, you know, stars in their eyes. 
No, I, 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 I would prefer if we like went a little bit more old school and just like got overthinking it kids. Right. Just like, you know, it was like more like a spy kids kind of thing where it's like, or baby geniuses. Yeah, it would be baby, gen- baby geniuses overthinking it is right. what I want to see. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, animated talking babies. Well, it's, I mean, uh, the, the, yeah, over, overthinkers are several of them in quite a hurry to reproduce. Look who's uh, overthinking now, too. <laughs> uh, so before we wrap up, I just want to uh, uh, give a shout out. I hope you wouldn't mind. Uh, but but John Parrish got married this weekend. Yay! I don't know. Think Yay! Sorry, I had muted my 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 microphone. <laughs> I hope, I hope Jen, we don't talk about our personal lives a lot. But uh, but uh, that's a wonderful, uh, awesome yes, thing. It was a great, wonderful wedding. I had the pleasure of being there, and uh, it was awesome. Yeah. John, you know what? You guys turned down for what? Uh, I, I won't say too much about it, but I will say turned down for what was well, this yep. and was awesome. So there you go. So congratulations uh, uh, to him and and um, and yeah. All right. Well, uh, that was the Expendables three. I mean, his, his lovely wife does comment on overthinking it sometimes. Yep. Uh, and but I'm not going to identify her no. here on the podcast. She can identify herself if she wants to, and if, we'll she, all say. if she wishes to. Yeah. Um, the uh, the podcast will be back next week with more uh, awesome overthinking. Until then, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably doesn't deserve.